right. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. I am so glad to be here with you all. It's I know that like it's easy to say that, but I am recharged and refreshed when we come together. And so thank you for being here. Uh, the fellowship has been good. The food has been good. Um, it was good to worship the Lord. And so I'm asking that uh, God would continue to be with us as we study his word. Uh, we're going to continue our series on the Holy Spirit today. Uh, and actually, we will be primarily in Ephesians chapter 4 and then in Galatians chapter 5. And actually, if you just want to turn to Galatians chapter 5, that's where we will be primarily. But as you all well know about me, uh, I do long introductions for really succinct sermons. So if you want to just count like the, you know, the like 10 minute like sermon as the sermon, then it's a shorter sermon, right? And then it's just intro before that. Um, but what we're doing is we're continuing our study on the Holy Spirit. Last week we talked about who he is, that he is God, that he is a person. And then we gave a little bit of time giving a distinction between what he does in the Old Testament to what he does in the New Testament. Does anybody remember what was the big thing that was different in the New Testament as opposed to the Old Testament as re in regarding to what the Holy Spirit does? Anybody remember? The Holy Spirit now, now us. He's indwelling in believers. Yeah. But like the idea that he is in every believer, and you all might remember that we saw that the, uh, the theme of, not the theme, but the Holy Spirit was represented by a pillar of fire by day, uh, by night, pillar of cloud by day, and his presence would rest over the Holy of Holies. That's part of why it's so significant that on the day of Pentecost, there are tongues of fire over the believers' heads. And the idea is that this, it was to show that God was residing there. Uh, it's huge. So what we're going to talk about today is the work of the Holy Spirit primarily in believers. Now to do that, we're going to give a little bit of introduction of like all the things that he is doing now, um, but we're going to lean in a little bit in what he does in believers as it relates to sanctification. So first of all, a couple of key things related to what he does in, in salvation. First of all, we recognize that he convicts sin. He regenerates the elect. He baptizes believers and he seals believers. I think a better word is to say he is the seal that is upon believers. Uh, so keeping this in mind, we're going to address each of these things today. But first, I've got to talk about conviction. And I don't know if you all have noticed, but it is common in a lot of circles to talk about the Holy Spirit and ignore his role in convicting of sin. But if I could just draw attention here to John 16, 8 through 11, it's, this is Jesus talking, it says, And when he comes, that is when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, he says. Concerning righteousness, because I go, uh, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because of the ruler of this world is judged. Now, what's really intriguing here, because it's like he convicts, but it's, it's, it's concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, that seems kind of odd. We think of conviction as being for sin alone. But notice he says he's convicting the world of sin because they don't believe in him. So very specifically, conviction that you are not a believer, you are in sin, and so thus there is conviction for that. Second, he says concerning righteousness. He says, because I go to the Father. The language here is that you need to know how to live like me. I will no longer be in front of you because I'm going to the Father. So the Holy Spirit is going to show you what righteousness looks like. He's going to work in you 
right? And then third, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. That like, hey, judgment is coming. And so what's intriguing is in Peter's sermon in the book of Acts in chapter 2, he goes through all of these things, and we're not going to go into great detail of it. I am going to provide the notes for you here. But it's a wonderful thing that as the, as the gospel is proclaimed on the day of Pentecost, that the role of the Holy Spirit is touched on in his sermon for each one of these three things. Concerning unbelief, concerning righteousness as according to Christ, who Christ is, and then concerning impending judgment. And we also see that this carries throughout all of Scripture, that there is this language, that there is this conviction that the Holy Spirit is to do. And what we're going to see in a minute is that conviction should lead to belief. Um, and then we're going to have a whole conversation about that. But what we also understand is that it sometimes, conviction is not the same as we would say as regeneration, and conviction can be happening. And yet there can be ongoing sin and suppression of the truth. So this leads to a big question that we're going to have to address right away that seems to come up in these studies of the Holy Spirit, and that is, what is this unpardonable sin? You all heard of this? Have you ever heard of this unpardonable sin and then got scared that maybe you had committed it? Like, I'm just being honest. I, I, I think most believers, once you hear about it, you're like, what? <laughs> what if I did this and there's no hope for me? So I need to address this because it's related to this conviction of sin, and I want us to have an understanding of it because it's going to give us clarity on what the Holy Spirit is going to do ongoing. So in Mark chapter 3, if you want to turn there, you can. Verse 22 through 30, it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying of Jesus, by the way, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Now a quick side note. Jesus has been going around showing that he is the Messiah. I always say that the miraculous works of Christ can arguably fit into two categories. It's really difficult to separate them out. But there are things that he does, and Scripture talks about, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is upon him in a unique way, and he is doing things that show, yes, the Holy Spirit's on him, he is the Messiah. And then there are things that he does because he is God himself. Things like speaking to the winds and the sea and they calm themselves, right? That's something that only their creator can do. And I always like to give clarity on this, that it doesn't matter how filled with the spirit you are, you don't get to rebuke storms because you didn't create them, right? And so we see some things where the Holy Spirit is in Jesus and he is showing, showing everybody that this is the Messiah, this is the Christ, Right? And so that has been happening here, and the Pharisees and scribes have seen it, and yet, here as he is casting out demons, they don't want to believe anything that could be fulfilled prophecy. And so they try to say, oh, no, 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 he's doing that because he's essentially possessed by demons, or he's possessed by Beelzebub. Right? So understanding that context, we'll read on starting in verse 23. It says, and he called to them, uh, I'm sorry, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, which by the way, Sometimes Jesus gives parables that people will understand. Sometimes he gives them so that certain people will not understand. It says, And how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. 
Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and who and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Okay, by the way, I love the language here in the ESV, because the language is that uh, he never has forgiveness. The specific language is not like, well, you can't be forgiven for that sin. It's that he never has forgiveness and that it is an eternal sin. Now, I think this is interesting phrasing. But the language here is that even though the Holy Spirit is confirming who Jesus is, they are suppressing that truth in their unrighteousness and even going so far as to call the Holy Spirit's work demonic. And so what's happening is in the suppression of truth, all the opportunity for belief is there, all of the evidence for belief is there, and yet they deny it. And the result is ongoing condemnation in their unbelief. So what we kind of see, the nature of this sin, is that the Pharisees saw the signs as, uh, as the Holy Spirit confirmed that Jesus is the Messiah, yet they claimed he was, a demon, he was demon-possessed. So what's happening is there's this deliberate, ongoing rejection of Christ and his atoning work and the suppression of the truth. Now we recognize that nobody can repent and believe the gospel unless God does the miracle of regeneration. Um, we are Reformed Baptist in our doctrine. Uh, we do believe in Scripture where it says no one seeks after God, not anyone. Um, that's just what Scripture teaches. And so apart from a work of God, you will not believe. And here what's happening is as the convicting work is happening, they're just suppressing it all the more. The idea is not so much that they've sinned so much that it's too big for God's grace. It's that the very nature of the sin is unbelief. And it's compounding the unbelief. And so it's like, well, you're never going to repent out of that. right? So what's essentially happening is God is abandoning man to himself. Man's heart is hardened, and belief becomes impossible and thus unpardonable. And that's, I would say, there are some who would disagree, but in general, scholars have an agreement that that is the nature of the unpardonable sin here, right? Um, there's a little bit of a debate, so, so a little side note. That would mean that if you truly repent and believe the gospel of the one true God, that Jesus really did die to pay your sin debt and rose from the dead, good news, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. A little side note, the Pharisees don't seem to care, right? At least we don't have any, uh, any indication that they were. A person who has committed the unpardonable sin probably does not care. The very fact that you're concerned about it is a good chance that you haven't, con- you haven't committed this sin, right? Because the idea is in its very nature you're rejecting Christ, Now, as I say that, though, I want to make sure that I'm really cautious not to lead you into kind of a laissez-faire attitude about this um, or a kind of a cavalier attitude towards your sin. So I'm going to very quickly cite Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, this doesn't say that this is a person who repented and believed the gospel. It's someone who received the knowledge of the truth. It says, but a fearful, uh, it says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Little quick side note. 
Remember that John the Baptist of Jesus said that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, which sounds really cool. And I would say fire purifies. We saw that the, you know, the tongues of fire, that, that it can be a good thing. But also fire consumes, it burns. And so there are some interpretations that would say that, yes, Jesus is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. But for the non-believer, that might mean you are under judgment. Yeah. So he uses this language here, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 28 says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? (laughs) It's all right, buddy. And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Uh, Now, you could argue that this is simply a reiteration of what was already talked about in the unpardonable sin. And I would say probably so, right? But can I just encourage you? Do not harden your heart against the Holy Spirit's work. We talk about the seared conscience that develops as you continually suppress his conviction in your life. So if you claim to be a believer... Let the Holy Spirit do his work in you. Do not throw water. Do not quench the Spirit's conviction. Because I, I don't want you to find out that you're maybe, maybe you have committed the unpardonable sin in that you continually reject the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I would say this is related very specifically to belief in Jesus Christ as the Savior. Um, but I would say good, faithful sheep don't keep suppressing the voice of the shepherd. And so if you are suppressing the Holy Spirit's conviction in your life, that I'm not saying that's gonna, you're going to lose your salvation. I'm saying that like, you need to question whether or not you really know Jesus if you don't allow his Holy Spirit to do his work in you. Just to clarify, this is about belief in Christ specifically. But I want to give that understanding. So um, let's talk about the positive side of things. What happens when someone does repent and believe the gospel? What we see here in Titus 3.5 Uh, It says, he saved us, not because of works done by us in in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. The language that we see in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus and several other places is this language of being born again. We use the the word regeneration. Uh, It comes from this word, uh, from the two words, pollen and Genesis, which essentially means just beginning again, uh, that we see in Matthew 19 and here in Titus 3.5. And the language is your spirit is made alive. You are born into the spirit. Uh, the language that we see again and again is this, uh, you're alive now. Like that's just the language of regeneration. And this is a work of the spirit. In fact, scripture says you're born of the spirit. So the result is that you have new life in Christ, which is grounded in the resurrection. And it is absolutely brought about by the Holy Spirit. And so we talk about when you believe, you are not going to believe based on your own sin nature. God has to do a work. Talks about in the Old Testament, he's going to take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. This is a work of the Spirit. It is a miracle. And it is why people turn from death and to life. Uh, The illustration I've heard Paul Washer use is like, if you could imagine having a, a tray of garbage 
and a tray of good, nutritious food, and you have pigs called up, the pigs will run to the garbage because they're pigs and they like slop and nastiness. And he's like, and if there was some snapping of fingers that could happen to turn that pig into a human immediately, he would vomit up all of the wretched nastiness that he's been eating and he will turn to the nutritious food because he's not a pig anymore. And so it is when a person comes to faith in Christ, God does a regenerative work, they repent and believe, and everything is different. And this is what we see in the new birth. And I'm, I'm knowing some of our stories here. I've, see, I've heard some of your stories. And you can remember, you're like, I remember when I ate the wretched slop of the world. And I remember the day that God changed my heart and my sin was detestable to me. Praise the Lord. That's regeneration. It is a key work that the Holy Spirit does. A little side note, these are things that in popular Christianity we, we don't talk enough about, but these are like the things the Holy Spirit does, right? Reading on a little bit more, there's ongoing effects here. You become a new person. You have a filial relationship with God. You are a recipient, an heir of future life. And sanctification continues. It is just like being born into a royal family. Spiritual birth means you are in the family of God. And just as a king has his sons and his daughters, they are princesses and princesses, and they have all of the heirship that comes with that. And then also, they need to be formed into the behavior that is necessary for kingly children. This is what we're going to continue on. But first, I need to talk about baptism in the Holy Spirit. Um, by the way, when you all hear baptism in the Holy Spirit, does something come to mind that maybe sounds very charismatic to you? It's most of us. Um, and I will say, I, I've been guilty of this, that there are those of us in Reformed circles or in just good old fundamentalist Baptist circles that were afraid to talk about certain aspects of the Holy Spirit because we didn't want to sound charismatic. And so we've, we've allowed at times false teachers to really just kind of control the narrative on this, and that's not good. And so I want to just very briefly address what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. And I would say it's so closely related to regeneration that at times it's a little bit hard to tell the difference. But here's the language, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Christ, as we see in reference to baptism, is the baptizer, and the Holy Spirit is the element of baptism. In the sense of like, when you get baptized, you get dunked underwater, that pastor, or whoever led you to the Lord, whoever it is, they're the, bab the one baptizing you, and the water is the element. So it is with Christ, he baptizes you in the Holy Spirit, he is the baptizer, and the Holy Spirit is what you're getting dunked into. Is who you're getting dunked into, forgive me. The effects are that now it is you are in the family of God. Um, there is this, it's this, we talk about the water baptism as a seal of the covenant, but it's this spiritual thing that's happening here, opposed to the, uh, you know, distinct from baptism of water, where you're actually in the body of Christ. The believers are unified under this, that like, man, we've all been baptized in the same spirit. You got baptized into it, I got baptized into it. Like, we're unified because of this. And that there is this power for Christian service that comes with it. We must make clear, by the way, that every believer is baptized in the Spirit. 
there are those in some Pentecostal circles that teach that the baptism of the Spirit is something that happens at a separate time. And usually they would say, and the way that you know that it happened is that you spoke in tongues. Um, and there's a little problem that comes up here because one, we don't see this every time people get saved in Scripture. Like, you know, the Ethiopian eunuch doesn't speak in tongues, right? Uh, we also see that not everybody has the gift of tongues. There's also pretty strong debate as to whether or not tongues are even a gift for today. The only time we see where baptism of the Spirit comes at a separate time of conversion is in early part of Acts when the first non-Jews come to Christ and it's the apostles later show up and they're telling them about the Holy Spirit and they're like, we didn't even know about the Holy Spirit. And they pray for them, the Holy Spirit falls on them and God uses it as a way to say to the apostles, look, I'm saving them too. One time, in all of scripture we see that. There is no evidence that anybody has to wait or to do anything other than repent and believe to get this baptism of the Holy Spirit. You repent and believe, you're baptized. Praise the Lord. Now, as we see, there are marks and changes, but it doesn't have to be tongues. And I'm bringing this up even in relation to that, uh, that whole issue of unpardonable sin, because I've heard people grow up in circles where maybe they, they've held to a high, high standard of holiness that essentially made people think, well, well I never sin. And then if you, if you think that other people in your church never sin, and then you know that you do, and they try to act like, well, no, this is, this is how you know you're holy and you're really living right. And then you're like, oh, man, maybe I committed the unpardonable sin, right? Or I've also seen it in charismatic circles where somebody's going around. Uh, they're, they're like, well, you got to speak in tongues to be saved. And everybody's like, well, I better, better make some noises come out of my mouth so they think I'm speaking in tongues. And you've got that. And then everybody's going around realizing that a whole bunch of people here are faking it, but I don't want to let it be known that I'm faking it. And so everybody goes on thinking like, maybe I don't really have it. Brothers and sisters, that is not the sign of the Spirit. God can do that, but you don't have to have tongues to be saved. More on that in a second. Ongoing work of the Spirit. So he indwells us, he fills us, he leads, directs, and teaches us. He empowers evangelism. He gives us gifts. We're going to talk about that another week. Uh, he allows us to bear fruit. Interesting things here. So what we're going to focus in on now, we've got just a few minutes, but this is going to be what we wanted to really get to here. Ephesians 5 gives a command, and it is related to this sanctification that happens in the Holy Spirit. Starting in verse 17, he says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. A little side note, can you guys understand that there's a contrast that's going on here? Right? I am controlled by what I am filled with. If I am filled with wine, I am controlled by the wine, and I am in debauchery. By the way, just in case we go off, and we are in a winery, um, but in case people get a misunderstanding, the length, we know that Paul advocated for the use of wine. We know that Jesus, our Lord, turned water into wine. This is not a prohibition against alcoholic drinks. What it is is do not be filled up with it. And I would argue that the principle carries on. I should not be filled up with Instagram. I shouldn't be filled up with television. I shouldn't be filled up with the things of this world. I shouldn't be filled up with things that might be fully sinful or things that might not even be bad, as is the case with wine, but that if I am idolizing it or I'm being so consumed by it that that is the focus of my mind, well, I'm being controlled by it. 
I am instead to be filled with the Spirit so that what I say and do is by His power in accordance to His will. Everybody with me on that? We are controlled by what we are filled with. And so what what Paul says here is then addressing one another. So he's saying to be filled with the Spirit, and then he seems to define that. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting one to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, what does this sound like? It sounds like the things that we are commanded to do when we gather as a body are the things that allow us to be filled with the Spirit. Now, there's certainly some of these things that I can do on my own or in my, in my town of family worship, but the language here is that I am filled with the Spirit when I am gathering with the saints and allowing myself to be nurtured spiritually. Yes, beyond this too, but he's talking about corporate gathering here. And so can I just encourage you, this is why I make such a big deal, this is one of the many reasons why I make such a big deal out of gathering together as, as the body of Christ. As a pastor, I see what happens when the assembly is neglected. And, and it's funny, very regularly then, there's some kind of a sin issue pops up. There's some kind of a brokenness pops up. Brothers and sisters, just the natural maintenance is too weak of a word. But the natural nutrition and care for your spiritual well-being that happens just because you come in fellowship with the body is huge. You are filling yourself up with the things of the spirit as opposed to filling yourself up with anything else. So the result of this is what we call spiritual fruit. So let's get to the main text. Now I'm going to start my sermon. I won't be very long. Um, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Uh, Paul is writing to the church at Galatia about these very things. And he's giving a wonderful description that I would say I I take people too often in discipleship. I I have to weigh myself against this often. Verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This, this should hearken us back a little bit to that whole issue of um, whether or not someone is in the faith or not, and what it means to commit the unpardonable sin, and I don't think that this is what this is about. But the language is, if you continue in these things, in unrepentance, you're not in the kingdom. Like, this is not an issue of you losing your salvation. It's an issue of, like, people who do this and continue in it are not in the kingdom. Now, we must recognize that every one of us do some of these things some of the time. Like, I don't know any of us that don't at times envy, right? That, that at times have a tendency to want to have some division, strife, jealousy. We talk about the bigger ones, too, but let me just tell you, let's acknowledge that the temptation for those is in our hearts, The language here is that I can do the works of the flesh and continue in those things, or I can grow in the fruits of the Spirit. Notice the contrast. The things of the flesh are works. There are things that you do. The things of the Spirit are fruits that grow out of you as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
So verse 22, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Can you, can you hear the, the language here? That he's like, the flesh stuff is stuff that you do. The spirit stuff is stuff that grows out of you. And I would be really cautious. I think I've, I've used language before that, well, these things are not actions. They're, they're things that are just growing. And, and I want to be careful. I think that is true to some extent that I can stand in line and I can do it with patience or without patience. Faithfulness is not something I go and do. It's something that grows out of me. There's, there's a long-term nature to it. It has to do with just fruit. It's, it's, it's something that grows. It's something that, that develops over time. And I think it's a, a profound thing that it's the works of the flesh that I do, but it's the fruit of the Spirit that God grows. And so the language is not merely, uh, hey, go in patient, go in faithful, go in goodness. The idea is like, abide in Christ, walk in the Spirit, let these things grow in you. Do the things that make you like a tree planted by the water. And so the nutrients of the Spirit are causing you to bear this kind of fruit. And then the admonition is, crucify the flesh. Um, Wonderful Puritan language there of mortifying the flesh. Kill the part of you that wants to sin. I don't mean, you know, go and physically cut limbs off. Um, But it means like, let that part of you die. And let the fruitful part of you grow in the spirit. Everybody with me? Cool. All right. So we are, uh, so the big question is like, okay, well, how do I do this? We've talked about this a little bit. Some key things scripture talks about is do not grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. Psalm 19, 14 and John 15 talk about meditating on the things of God. John 15 talks about abiding in Christ and letting God's word abide in you. Ephesians 5 talks about this staying connected with the body of Christ. Romans 8 and Ephesians 6 talk about consistent prayer. And the result of all of these things is that I have power for ministry. I have strength during temptation. The testimony of Christ is built into the things that I do. I have boldness when I speak the word of God. I'm fit for Christian service. Joy in the face of opposition. Enthusiasm for God. I have courage and spiritual fruit. God guides me. I have assurance of my salvation. There is this ongoing theme in which everything I need to live in obedience to God and complete the work he has is there because the Holy Spirit is filling me up. Uh, one of my favorite illustrations from my hero professor, Dr. John Douglas Morrison, he says, like when you get saved, you're baptized in the Spirit, you're regenerated, you have the Holy Spirit. And it's like having a giant, he uses this illustration, a giant piece of pizza as long as your arm. And you are starving. You are completely lacking in nutrients. And so you have the pizza. Now, are you still hungry? Well, yeah, like you got to consume the pizza, man. Like you got to eat it. We're assuming that it has vegetables on this pizza. The illustration's not perfect, to be really honest. But there's a, there, there takes time as you consume it and as it, as it works into your body and, that, and the nutrients have their way and you get stronger and healthier. Probably not as good as using actual fruit illustrations, but I don't know how to grow fruit. And so my illustrations break down some. But the language here is that the Holy Spirit is in you. And so you must walk in the Spirit, abide in the Spirit, let Him build you up, fellowship with the saints, be in the Word, be in prayer, because these things naturally grow that fruit. 
2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 11, as we're finishing out, says this. Now, if the ministry of death carved in the letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The language here is that like, the, the old way of the law has been eclipsed in the glory of God because he's sending the Holy Spirit in you. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites would not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. A little, uh, if you guys remember from the Old Testament, uh, they were like, we can't look at your face, Moses. It's too glorious after you've been with God. We don't want to see that glory. It's too much for us. And the language here, though, is he's like, we're not shielding ourselves from the glory of God. The Holy Spirit is here. He's present within us. It says, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they, read the old co- uh, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. You guys get this? The language here is that it's like the veil that was once there keeping you from seeing and experiencing the glory of God is gone. And by the Holy Spirit in you, you are daily growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and being formed into his image. And it's glorious for Christ's glory and your well-being, it is glorious. And this is why, well, many things, if you're sitting around wondering like, man, how do I have assurance of salvation? I mess up so much. I still sin. I still struggle. And yet there's this language that the Holy Spirit, we've alluded to this today, is the seal of our salvation. 2 Corinthians 12, 21 through 22 says, Now he who established us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. The language here is just as a king would put a seal on his documents to say, that belongs to me, that is from me, it's being sent by me, it's owned by me, so it is that the Holy Spirit is God's seal on us saying, that is is God's child. And so I don't, brothers and sisters, I don't expect that you are immediately perfect. I don't actually believe the Nazarene doctrine of, uh, of sinless perfectionism. Um, but I do believe that you should be able to look at your life now as opposed to your life before you knew God and be able to say, the Holy Spirit is in me. That you are convicted when you sin that you you desire the things of God, that you love the assembly of the saints. And when you get together and when you're in the word, you notice your spirit being built up and that over time those spiritual fruits grow. Brothers and sisters, that is how you know you belong to God. It's not whether or not you speak in tongues or whether or not you're this beautiful, wonderful teacher or whether or not you can do all these other things. It's, It's the Holy Spirit in you making you more like Christ. Do you love God more? Are you becoming more like him? then brothers and sisters, 
you have the Holy Spirit and be assured of your salvation. And if not, repent and believe. Let's pray. Lord, as we finish out here, we thank you. Um, We ask that you would indeed work in us that the Holy Spirit would continue uh, to grow in us, that we would be filled with him, and that the fruits of the Spirit, uh, that the signs of belief in you would be so evident on us uh, that the world takes note and that the gospel is heard all the more and that your children delight in you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So could I ask um, uh, deacons, what, what's that? Yeah, uh, gospel's gonna, uh, Greg's going to deliver the gospel. Could I get our deacons and hopefully soon-to-be deacon grab the uh, communion?